0: Hello, my name is Jared goa I am Adjunct Associate Professor of Law at the National University of Singapore. Today, I will speak about non-appropriation and sovereignty in outer space. Veni vidi vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. For much of humanity's history, exploration and conquest went hand in glove. New lands and new territories were sought to be annexed, appropriated, acquired. Ownership or sovereignty over spaces next to those lands was also assumed – witness the territorial nature of airspace and the water spaces. It is then a moment of absolute altruism, or one of utter insanity, when we find universal consensus to preserve a space as race communis, and a moon from claim of appropriation or sovereignty. In October 1957, Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite, was launched. The satellite was in orbit around the Earth, and at that time, every state claimed and exercised complete and exclusive sovereignty over the airspace above its territory. Conceivably therefore, every time Sputnik passed over the projection of a state's territory in outer space, it could give rise to a protest of violation of state sovereignty as an unauthorised overflight. However, no state protested that Sputnik encroached upon their sovereign territory nor has there been any protest in the intervening years. This acquiescence, through which states acknowledged that outer space was of a legal character fundamentally different than that of the airspace beneath it, has confirmed state practice that all states had the right to engage in space activities without seeking the prior permission of any other state. This practice confirms one of the fundamental principles regulating the exploration and use of outer space, namely that outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to ownership rights, nor to any sovereign or territorial claims. This principle found expression in Article 2 of the 1967 Treaty on principles governing the activities of states in the exploration and use of outer space, or the Outer Space Treaty although it was already well accepted in state practice prior to the conclusion of that treaty. Thus, in the immediate aftermath of humanity's first excursion into outer space, a set of fundamental principles of international space law came into being. This includes the principle that outer space is to be regarded as res communis omnium. By the time the outer space treaty was concluded a decade after Sputnik 1 was launched, The Soviet Union and the United States had been continuously engaged in an extensive range of space activities. Yet, there had been no protests from other states, nor had either the Soviet Union or the United States, the only two nations with access to outer space at the time, made a claim to sovereignty over any part of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies. Indeed, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin planted the United States flag on the moon in July of 1969, there was no claim to sovereignty. On the contrary, the plaque left by the Apollo 11 mission reads, Here, men from the planet Earth first set foot on the moon. We came in peace for all mankind. It is noteworthy that the non-appropriation principle is enshrined in Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty and comes immediately after the principles of common interest and the freedom of exploration and use of outer space that is provided for in Article 1. The foremost objective of Article 2 was to reinforce these principles by confirming that territorial sovereignty does not apply to outer space. As well, the non-appropriation principle in Article 2 was aimed to avoid conflict in outer space as a result of competing claims of sovereignty, a lesson learned on Earth through much bloodshed. Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty provides Outer space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. It is significant to note that, aside from the reference to claims of sovereignty, the wording of Article 2 does not expressly limit itself to the actions of states. Now, This has led to debate over the precise scope of Article 2 and, more specifically, whether private property rights may exist in outer space. The official records of the negotiations in the United Nations General Assembly leading to the adoption of the Outer Space Treaty show that there was broad agreement that neither state sovereignty nor private proprietary claims apply in outer space. It is noteworthy that, during the negotiations, the opinion of the United States was that private entities should be allowed to undertake the exploration and use of outer space. The sovereign union took the diametrically opposite position. Eventually, the compromise reached was that the private sector could have a role in the exploration and use of outer space, provided that they would be authorized and continuously supervised by the state of which they were nationals. This agreement found expression in Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. Reading Articles 2 and 6 of the Outer Space Treaty together, therefore, there is good reason to believe that the term national in both articles are to be interpreted in the same manner. This means that the prohibition on appropriation in Article 2 applies equally to states' parties as it does to non-governmental entities that claim the nationality of states' parties. Article 11 of the 1979 Agreement Governing the Activities of States on the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies, also known as the Moon Agreement, supports this interpretation. Article 11 paragraph 2 of the Moon Agreement repeats the terms of Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, thereby applying the same principle of non-appropriation and the prohibition of any claim of sovereignty to the exploitation of natural resources of the Moon and other celestial bodies. Moreover, Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty provides that outer space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to appropriation by means of use or occupation. This means that no amount of use will grant the user a legal claim of ownership rights over outer space or any celestial body. But what does this principle mean in practice? It is useful to consider four real-life examples in this regard. First, claim of state sovereignty over parts of the geostationary orbit. Secondly, private sales of plots of land on the moon. Thirdly, claim for parking fees for the placement of a spacecraft on an asteroid. And lastly, space mining. Now the first example relates to the geostationary orbit. The geostationary orbit is a circular geosynchronous orbit 35,786 kilometers above the Earth's equator and following the direction of the Earth's rotation. In this orbit, space objects appear in a fixed position in the sky above the ground at all times. Now, weather and communications relay satellites are often placed in the geostationary orbit, so that antennas on the ground need not rotate in order to track them. The geostationary orbit is an undepletable but limited resource, meaning that although we will never lose the geostationary orbit, there are only a limited number of satellites that fit in that orbit. Now, this makes slots in the geostationary orbit very valuable, since for every satellite that takes up a slot, another cannot. In 1976, certain equatorial states, including Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Indonesia, Kenya, Uganda and Zaire, issued the Bogotá Declaration. Now, These states claimed sovereign rights over segments of the geostationary orbit above their respective territories. These claims were vigorously opposed by other states, and were unsuccessful. The second question is the icebreaker question that every lawyer interested in space law is asked – the off-sighted private sales of plots of real estate on the moon. Now, Can one buy pieces of lunar territory? On the 22nd of November 1980, Dennis Hope filed a declaration of ownership over the moon with the San Francisco County Office. He declared himself the omnipotent ruler of the lighted lunar surface, with the exalted title of the head cheese. Hope also registered a business called the Lunar Embassy and sent copies of the declaration to the United States, the Soviet Union and the United Nations, together with a US$55,000 storage and littering bill. Hope also started selling plots of land on the moon, issuing deeds of sale as proof of ownership. He now claims to have had more than three and a half million property owners from 181 countries, including several astronauts, members of various, ro- various royal families, and the members of the casting crew of the Star Wars motion picture series. Now another company, the Lunar Embassy, was founded in China and focuses on selling plots of lunar territory to Chinese nationals. The Beijing Industrial and Commercial Authority suspended the company's trading license and fined it on the basis of fraud. Brought before the courts, the Haidian District People's Court found against the Lunar Embassy in 2005. The decision was upheld on appeal before the Beijing First Intermediate People's Appellant Court in 2007. Both of the judicial decisions were based on the fact that since China became a party to the Outer Space Treaty in 1983, the prohibition on the appropriation of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, applied to China and to its nationals. Now These examples indicate that state practice confirms the application of the principle of non-appropriation in outer space. So the answer is no, one cannot purchase tracts of land on the moon. The sale is only worth the paper it is printed on. The same applies to purported sales of lands on Mars and on Uranus. Now Private claims of ownership over planets and other celestial bodies comprise the third example. One case involved the asteroid 433, also known as Eros. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration of the United States, or NASA, landed its near-shoemaker research spacecraft on it in 2011. However, a United States citizen, Gregory W. Nemitz, declared that he had claimed Eros on behalf of his company, Orbital Development. Nemitz had filed papers in 2000 with the Archimedes Institute claiming ownership over Eros for resource mining and the construction of a recreational tourist facility. Nemitz sent NASA an invoice for a parking fee of $20 US dollars per Earth century, due within 21 days of landing a NASA, uh, NASA spacecraft. NASA declined to pay the fee on the basis that Nemitz's claim of ownership had no basis in law. The United States Department of State espoused the same views as NASA. Nemitz then filed his claim in Federal District Court for the District of Nevada. The court ruled that the Outer Space Treaty did not create any rights in Nemitz, to appropriate private property rights on asteroids and dismissed the case. Upon appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the dismissal was upheld on the same grounds stated by the district court. Now this was not unprecedented. As early as 1936, A.D. Lindsay, a man who had previously laid ownership claims over the Pacific and Atlantic oceans, declared before the Pittsburgh Notary Office that he owned every planet and every other planet that could be seen from those planets, which he named the A.D. Lindsay's Archipelago. He also drew up separate documents declaring ownership over the Moon and Saturn, and registered all the documents with Irwin County Courthouse in Georgia, United States. Now, Nothing came out of Lindsay's claims. Similarly, in 1949, James Thomas Mangan founded the Nation of Celestial Space, also known as Celestia, laying claim of sovereignty and ownership over everything in outer space. Letters were sent to 74 states requesting official recognition of Celestia as a sovereign nation, and an application for admission to the United Nations was filed in 1948. The United Nations rejected the application. This, however, did not prevent Mangan from protesting the 1957 launch of Sputnik 1, with the argument that the Soviet Union had trespassed on celestial territory. Mangan also protested the launch of the Surveyor cameras to the Moon by the United States in 1966. Neither state recognised Celestia or acknowledged its protests. Now, does this mean that there can never be private use or appropriation of the natural resources abundant in outer space? And what happens, for example, in a situation where the natural resources of a celestial body, such as a small asteroid, are exploited so that the celestial body ceases to exist? There is argument that such exploitation may be unlawful, not merely because of its contravention of the non-appropriation principle, but also because it is contrary to the principle that the use of outer space be for the benefit and in the interest of all states, and that due regard is to be paid to the corresponding interests of other states. Now this leads us to the fourth real-life situation to consider, the question of space resource mining. Can a private company claim ownership of an asteroid, achieve exclusive mining rights, extract valuable minerals and other resources from the asteroid, and sell it for commercial profit? In 2012, a private company named Planetary Resources announced ambitious plans to prospect and mine near-Earth asteroids. Planetary Resources is backed by a group of highly regarded technology and space experts, including Larry Page and Eric Schmidt of Google, Richard Branson of the Virgin Group, and Charles Simone former head of Microsoft's Application Software Group and a fifth privately funded space tourist. Can Planetary Resources legally mine and commercially exploit asteroids? The only other precedent relates to samples returned from the moon by the Soviet lunar missions and the United States Apollo missions in the 1960s. Approximately 382 kilograms of lunar material were brought back to Earth. NASA has declared that its samples comprise material that is a limited national resource a future heritage, and that samples be released only for approved applications in research, education and public display. NASA has also exchanged some samples with the Soviet Union. By any other measure, claiming something as a national resource, controlling access to it and exchanging it for something of value would lead to the conclusion that the United States owns the Apollo samples, and that the successor to the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation, owns those from the lunar missions. Indeed, Russian lunar samples have been resold to private individuals. Does this establish precedent then? that? When portions of a celestial body are removed from that body, they can be subject to ownership. In this respect, the 1979 Moon Agreement may be instructive. The Moon Agreement governs the exploration and exploitation rights in natural resources of the Moon and other celestial bodies. Article 11, paragraph 2 of the Moon Agreement reiterates the prohibitions on appropriation contained in Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty. However, the object and purpose of the Moon Agreement is to promote the exploitation of the natural resources of the Moon through its principles and the future establishment of an international legal framework. It is important to note that any such exploitation of outer space resources must be consistent with the general principles of international space law, such as due regard for the interests of other states. Moreover. The Moon Agreement stipulates that any such exploitation shall be carried out in a manner compatible with the purposes of the future international regime as set out in its Article 11, Paragraph 7, as well as the right to collect and remove samples provided for uh, for in Article 6, Paragraph 2. Significantly, there is no prohibition on the grant of extraterrestrial exploitative rights to public or private entities in relation to resources in outer space as long as the exploitation process is in line with the principles in international space law and general international law. In general international law, states have sovereignty over their territory. Territorial sovereignty comprises a bundle of state rights, including the right to exploit natural resources on and in that territory, either directly through the vehicle of national corporations or indirectly through the issuance of exploitation licenses to private corporations. Extrapolating from a classic view of international law, if there is no sovereignty in outer space, there is likewise no sovereignty over natural resources in outer space. There is therefore no possibility for state entities to either directly or indirectly exploit these natural resources. This is the practical consequence of the principle of non-appropriation. If states do not have the jurisdiction to issue exploitation licenses, then who does? At the moment, there is no established authority with the mandate to hand out such licences to exploit space resources that is consistent with the race-communist nature of outer space. Moreover, since such exploitation must be in line with the principles of space law, including the principle that outer space is the common heritage of mankind, the precise scope of the right to exploit natural resources in space, including the conduct of a licensee and the conduct it must adhere to, will be restricted by the interpretation of those principles to date, international space law has not devised a legal framework for the exploitation of space resources. When one considers the vast scale of the resources available in outer space, it is truly remarkable that outer space represents one of humanity's greatest efforts at maintaining peace. Reserving the outer space environment as the common heritage of mankind, a global commons of res communis nature, is truly an achievement. Nevertheless, international space law must evolve with the times. With developments in space technology, the vast abundance of resources in outer space is almost within our grasp. Within this lifetime, or certainly within the next, humanity will have achieved the technology necessary to exploit the resources in outer space. The challenge for the current framework of international space law is to stay relevant by devising a system through which such resource exploitation can take place, in a manner consistent with, and perhaps even supportive of, the principles of the freedom of use and exploration of outer space as the common heritage of mankind. Thanks for listening.